This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, let's begin our day today with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts, enkindle in us the fire of your divine love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of thy faithful people, grant us by the same light that we always may be wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Mary, Queen of Peace, Saint Joseph, Saint Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The title of the talk this morning is The Human Soul and Its Properties. Yesterday we spoke about soul in general as the principle, the interior principle of all living things. Today we're zeroing in more specifically on the human soul and its properties. So the handout titled The Human Soul and Its Properties is the one to look at first. Please leave the other handout aside. We'll talk about that towards the very end. So one of the main points we made yesterday is that the human soul is the form of the human body, or the soul is the form of the body, but specifically when it comes to humans, the human soul is the form of the human body. So this, the form, in this sense, the substantial form, makes a thing to be, to be what it is, and to be, to be one. So the human soul makes your body, my body, makes the human body to be, to be human and to be to be one. So the form establishes throughout it its organization, its various parts, and the organization of all those parts and all the parts of the parts all the way down, and the soul activates the body to the extent that it is alive. Okay? There are further acti activations or activities in the second acts, we talked about those a little bit, but that's the gist. The human soul is the form of the human body. Okay? Now, the human person, or the human soul, we can say, has powers or potencies or vires. These powers or potencies of the human soul are the principles of further activities beyond simply being or being alive. Okay? So the soul itself makes your, your body to be human. It makes it human material. And it makes it to be living human material. And it activates it to the extent that it's alive. Okay? But there are further things that we carry out or do that are above and beyond just simply being or being alive. Okay? And those, the principles of those further activities are the potentialities of the soul or the powers of the soul as they're traditionally called. Now, how do we think about these powers of the soul? I mean, even the expression of the soul can be a little bit confusing because St. Thomas is, is very clear, this is the third point on the handout, that some of the powers, we could even say most of the powers, have the composite as their subject. Okay? In fact, they're potentialities of the whole organism, body and soul in one psychosomatic unit. And the vegetative powers are all powers of the composite. 
and the sensory powers are all powers of the composite. Let's just go down through a list of the powers for those who may not be familiar with them. So the vegetative powers are the nutritive, reproductive, and sometimes called augmentative powers. Um, well, we could just speak of growth, okay? All those activities, all the nutritive activities that you, you, you are carrying out, uh, and all the reproductive activities and all the growth activities, these are activities of the whole composite. And the potentiality to carry them out is a potentiality of the composite. So when you eat something and the power of nutrition is at work digesting it, I mean, this is going to be activities of organs in, in the body, okay? If we go up uh, an order to the sensory powers, there are two kinds. There are cognitive sensory powers. And among the cognitive sensory powers, there's the external senses, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, hearing. And the internal senses, the senses communis, the imagination, memory, and cogitative power. Now, we, there's a lot to say about each of those. We're not going to go into the descend into the details. I'm just going to make one point, which is that these powers are rooted, they have their subject in the composite. So these are physiological activities and physiological capabilities or abilities or potentialities. It's very important when you see or taste or smell or touch, it is your body that's doing this thing, doing these things. It's not the body without the soul, it's the body as formed and animated by the soul that's carrying out these activities, okay? It's very important to keep this in mind that St. Thomas thinks that, yeah, the experiences, sensory experience is physiological activity. And he thinks that uh, internal sensory activity, imagination, memory, like sensory memory, like where did I leave my keys? Uh, this, this is physiological activity as well, okay? Uh, that's why he can account for, rather easily, why it is that we have mental problems when organs are damaged. Someone falls and hits their heads, someone uh, goes on drugs, something like that, you get into a car accident. There can be cognitive impairments and, and a, a warped experience interiorly because of the organ damage. Okay. So, to that extent, Aquinas is very much uh, with a lot of, with, to some extent, materialists, okay? And he can explain a lot of the data that they like to point to against um, dualism. All right, in addition to the cognitive sensory powers, there are appetitive sensory powers. And they're generally divided into two kinds, the concupiscible and the irascible. And I have listed out here the actual passions that go with each of these powers because they came up yesterday, the topic of emotions came up yesterday in the Q&A period. So I've listed out love, desire, joy, hatred, aversion, and sadness, hope, daring, despair, fear, and anger. St. Thomas has a great deal to say about these passions in general and each of them specifically or in particular. And uh, it goes to show that Aquinas acknowledges that it belongs to the the soul, the life of the soul, or the activities that the soul carries out, and the 
potencies that the soul has, the, these powers, the passions, or appetitive powers, sensory appetites, have as their very acts or movements these passions. Okay? And that's only one level of what today we might call the emotional uh, side of our lives. Okay? St. Thomas acknowledges that. Okay? But it's very interesting to note that for him, these powers and these activities are, again, embodied. They're physiological responses to sensory stimuli. So when you walk into the kitchen and you smell some good food cooking, uh, you're going to have a physiological response. You may start salivating in various ways and other things. Or, or if you are fear, if you are um, caught in a very fearful situation, you're driving along or something and you almost, almost get hit or almost die or something, you'll, like, you'll be shaking. Okay, you're having a physiological reaction to the event. That goes with fear. Uh, the fear itself is a physiological response. Okay? All right. But it, it's, it's not just physiological in the sense that there's no felt uh, or interior experience of it as well. There's both a felt side or an interior experience of it and a physiological movement. It's all in one. Because the soul and the body are literally one unit. Okay? Sometimes we talk about the, the body-soul composite, but even using the word composite kind of suggests the soul and body are originally two different things and they're kind of combined. That's why I've started to use the expression psychosomatic unit. Uh, it, it's an expression that, that captures the original unity of the whole organism better than, I think, maybe composite sometimes suggests to us. Okay. Going on, there are other powers of the soul that has the soul itself as their subject. Now, remember, we're talking specifically about human beings now, or human soul. So there are certain powers that have the soul as distinct from the body as their subject, or at least that's what we need to show. Okay? And those, are, those powers are sometimes called, together in one reason, in a very, very broad sense, or mind. That's a very common term that St. Thomas uses, men's. Okay? Um, so how shall we understand these rational powers? Again, we can distinguish them into two kinds, the cognitive and the appetitive. Before we get to them individually, though, it's important to note that St. Thomas does have a discussion of mind in general, and he calls it one whole power. This is very clear in his treatment of the topic in the De Veritate. Mind is one whole power. And it has these two powers belonging to it. But there's a kind of original unity, it seems, that of mind that's over and above either the cognitive power alone or the appetitive power alone. And, it's mi and mind is going to carry out acts that are neither acts of intellect alone nor acts of will alone. Specifically, free acts. They originate from mind as a whole. Okay? Um, so that the spiritual powers, or this whole power, which has these two sort of sides to it, the cognitive, its cognitive capacity and its appetitive capacity, this whole power, 
which belongs to the soul alone as distinct from the body, is often called mind, often called spirit, like with a little s, and sometimes called heart. Okay? I just want to give you that in terms of vocabulary so that when you're reading Aquinas, you know like mind, heart, and spirit have kind of somewhat technical terms, are, have somewhat precise meanings for him. Uh, heart, of those three, heart is probably the loosest. It has many, many, many uh, sort of layers of meaning to it. But he does use it a lot because scripture uses it a lot. So let's now dive into mind specifically, this whole power which belongs to the soul as distinct from the body. There are two sides of it or two powers that belong to mind, which is number one, the cognitive power, usually called intellect, and the appetitive power, usually called will. But I want to stop for a moment with those because sometimes we get so used to throwing around the words intellect and will that we don't uh, we can forget how much is packed into these things. And recently I was spending some time thinking about intellect and, and uh, it's one word, but it does many, 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 many things in Aquinas' overall understanding of the human person. So it's all kind of deceptive in a way to just sort of put one word on it. Um, so I'll try to back up and go through the order of discovery. Um, and use an analogy to understand intellect. Uh, do we have something in our experience that is comparable? It's very standard in the history of philosophy. I think it's in Plato, Aristotle, certainly in Augustine, and the other fathers of the church, to speak of the eye of the soul, the eye of the mind, or the eye of the heart. Aquinas uses all those expressions. And uh, so it's very simple, it's something like this. As the eyes are to the body, so the intellect is to the soul. And when you understand the intellect as the eye of the soul, uh, you can get a sense of what we mean by intellect just to begin the discussion. Okay? And then once you've got that sense of it, you can start to say, okay, well, what does the eye of the soul do? Okay? What are the various activities it carries out? And again, for St. Thomas, it's going to carry out lots of abstract thought, uh, in t in, you name it, abstract thought, apprehension of the good, judgment of conscience. Uh, it all belongs to intellect. All right. The other power that belongs to mind is the appetitive power, the will. Now, again, we want to pause with that for a moment because there's a way in our language uh, in which there's a kind of ordinary use of the term where I think by will a lot of people just mean like the ability to control um, or my executive task management power. Okay? Um, that's, St. Thomas acknowledges that that's an act of the will, okay? But that's not, say, the essence of it. Okay, or what it is. In our experience, we often experience our will through struggles with executive control and the, the experience of having options and saying, am I going to go this way or am I going to go that? And commanding oneself to go this way or commanding oneself to go that. But that's not the, the essence of the thing. Okay? 
So for St. Thomas, will is principally, principally, the hunger for the good. It's the ability to love. Sometimes it's even called the will of love. And secondarily, among other things that the will can do, uh, the will is the power to execute, to command, to move body parts, to move other potencies into action. But that's not the, that's not the primary thing that the will is. It's principally and primarily this hunger for the good, the ability to love, and execution, uh, the application of the powers to a task, uh, flows out of, ultimately, one's loves. I wish we could stop and talk about that for a long time because it's, um, it's really worth pondering. At the root, in a sense, of, the, of, our, of our free choices and our task management and all those executive functions that we carry out, at the root of it all for St. Thomas is your loves or love. And in that, he very, very much, I think, is following Augustine. Okay. Um, it really was a revolutionary thing for me when I first started to study St. Thomas to think of the will in terms of love. Uh, I think almost all of us think of it in terms of this ability to, to execute a task. Okay. Um, so the mind then consists of, this whole power of mind consists of these two powers intellect and will, the eye of the soul, and the longing of the heart, if you want to put it that way. Uh, that's, at the, that's what this, this power is. Now, the great question is, see, St. Thomas will often call this the spiritual powers, okay? The spiritual powers of intellect and will. And by spiritual here, we want to stop and think about what that means. What does it mean to call these spiritual? He doesn't mean, he means immaterial in this context. Okay, when we're in a philosophical context and we use the term spiritual, we mean immaterial. So these are powers and activities that are not intrinsically, essentially, material activities. They're not physiological operations. Okay? There's an activity or an operation that the soul carries out over and above the physiological uh, operations or activities we were talking about regarding the previous powers. External sensation, that's physiological activity. Internal sensation, that's physiological activity. Um, passions, that's physiological activity. The activities of the intellect and will, that's not physiological activity. It's intrinsically, meaning of its, of its essence, that activity is immaterial, okay? Or so we need to argue, okay? But that's St. Thomas's position. That's why mind is sometimes just called spirit, okay? The immaterial power within us, okay? Now, when we switch over and, and have theological discussions or talk about Catholic life in general and the spiritual life, uh, the word spiritual takes on another meaning. Okay, which we can only touch on at the end of this talk. That's where the spiritual doesn't mean simply the immaterial, but means something like the supernatural. When the soul is elevated to, to be and to operate 
on a level of being over and above what we are intrinsically or essentially or by our nature. Okay, that's another sense of the term spiritual. Okay? So sometimes Thomas will even talk about natural spirituality, which is the immateriality of this, pow this immaterial power which belongs to our soul as distinct from our body and it's an activity that's carried out over and above our physiological activity and from spirit with a little s in us there flows all of our great human projects language and learning and and you know architecture and engineering and law and music and the arts and it all flows from our natural spirituality and that's irregardless of one's religion, race, ethnic background. I mean, all human beings engage in these activities, more or less. It belongs to our natural spirituality as distinct from supernatural spirituality, which is a form of life really originally in God and in Christ, which is communicated to us and to our souls uh, through Christ and the sacraments and God's gift of grace, generally speaking. And that is a higher form of life than the kind of life we have by virtue of our soul. Okay? Sometimes it's even compared to a second soul. So St. Thomas will say in some places, as soul is to the body, grace is to the soul. Okay? But we're jumping ahead to the good stuff. Okay? All right. So what we want to do now is just give an argument that uh, mind or these powers of intellect and will are immaterial, okay? Or that there's a kind of natural spirit, there's a spirit in us by nature. And we could spend a lot of time on these arguments, many people have, have and we've even had whole conferences on, on these topics in the past, but I'll give you what I think is the shortest, fastest, simplest version of St. Thomas's preferred what seems to be his preferred argument for the immateriality of intellect. And the argument is spelled out here on the handout. Premise number one, to know is to be what is known. Okay, That's the first premise. Now that's Aristotle's theory of knowledge, sometimes called the identity theory of knowledge. And it's generally distinguished from another theory of knowledge which construes knowledge as us having something displayed to us from the outside. So there's the object displaying itself, there's the subject receiving the object, and there's a dance or a show going on, an interaction going on between subject and object in this almost like an I-thou sort of uh, description of knowledge. Bernard Lonergan very helpfully says this is a platonic way of thinking about knowledge and Aristotle just will have, kind of have none of it, for him to know just is to be. It's just to be the known. Okay? All right. Now that's not to say that Aristotle has no sense of manifestation. He does, or things appearing to us. He does have that for sure, but his theory of knowledge doesn't end with that. He traces knowledge back to this principle, to be is to, to know is to be what is known. Okay? Now number two, what is known is universal, okay? So it's possible for me and for you, for all of us, to know not just this man or that man, like Socrates or Plato, but to know what man is or what humanity is or what human nature 
as such is, to know the quiddity or the essence, to know the whatness. But that, what you're knowing when you know that, is universal. It's applicable to many. Okay? But number three, what is universal is immaterial. Now that may not be very uh, obvious or intuitive to, to, to a lot of people. So with number three, try the contrapositive. Whatever is material is particular. So if you've got a material thing, you've got, well, this dog, this cat, this blade of grass. Whatever is material is a this. It's particular. Well, just run the contrapositive on that and you get number three. Whatever is universal is immaterial. Okay? Whatever is not particular is immaterial. Okay? Now that's assuming things are exhausted between the universal and particular, which we can take for granted at this point. Okay? What follows is number four, to know is to be immaterial. The act of knowing is to, is to be immaterial or the immaterial quiddity. Okay? That is known. All right. Uh, that's the, the, I guess you'd say, the fastest, simplest version of the argument. All the, uh, the, the fights and distinctions that, are, that come up regarding this are all surrounding one of these, these premises or points. Okay, so some people will deny the identification premise, number one. Some people will uh, deny number two, that whatever is known is universal. Uh, so there's various ways we can, and other distinctions, of course that people will want to draw. But that's the gist of it. That seems to be the argument that St. Thomas prefers. Okay, he's got other arguments that are quite interesting, but this is the one he seems to use the most. Okay. Um, once you have that, you realize that the act of knowing, the intellectual act, the, 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 when the eye of the soul sees, uh, this act is intrinsically and completely immaterial. Okay? And once you have that on the table, that there's this, in, this immaterial activity going on that the soul itself carries out, people say, wait a second, what about those examples you brought up earlier when you fall and hit your head, uh, you don't think so well, and if you get into a car accident or something like that, there's amnesia. This, as soon as you posit an immaterial activity going on, um, it seems like you follow into all those same objections which are raised against substance dualism. And St. Thomas has a simple way of answering that or dealing with those uh, sorts of objections. Although knowing, the answer goes like this, although knowing is intrinsically immaterial, it's an essentially immaterial activity, nonetheless, extrinsically, it depends upon the sensory powers, particularly imagery. Okay. And so when the sensory powers are damaged, one of the necessary conditions for higher, higher thought or higher intelligence, higher intellectual activity, higher knowing, one of the conditions that's necessary for understanding the universal is taken out. And so the capacity to understand the universal will be impeded in that moment. Okay? Once there's recovery or if there's recovery of the of the physiological activities of the sensory powers and imagery becomes available again, then the intellect can commence again with its own activity, which intrinsically is immaterial. 
Okay, so one needs to use sensory images in order to know. Uh, but to know is not simply the same thing as to imagine or to use images. Okay, now just to pause for one moment, uh, that statement right there that uh, one needs sensory images in order to know, that's, that's a kind of a, it's a statement that sets up a big problem, uh, which we'll get to in a moment when we talk about the immateriality of the soul. But if I need images in order to know, and images depend on physiological, or our physiological activity, then what happens when I die? My soul separates from my body. I have this intellect that's carrying out, or can carry out this intrinsically immaterial activity, but it needs physiological imagery in order to conduct that intellectual activity, is it possible then to think in the afterlife? Um, this is a, an objection that I mean, Lucretius raises this and some of the other ancient materialists raise very, this and very similar objections. And Aquinas does not back off his, his epistemology uh, or his principle that we need images in order to think. Uh, and he really kind of bites the bullet when it comes to the separated soul and he just says God supplies the phantasms during the interim state while the separated soul uh, lives on, okay? Um, he really would rather say that than give up his empiricism, okay? All right. His Aristotelian empiricism, we should say. All right. So, uh, let's talk then about the immateriality and immortality of the soul. Let's uh, see how they might relate to one another. So this is point number seven on the handout. If the soul exercises a second act, intrinsically and completely immaterial, and we just can't give an argument for that earlier, then the soul must be immaterial in its first act. Okay, why? Act follows from being. I'll just kind of use that as my uh, premise here for the time being. If the soul is immaterial in its first act, then at separation from the body, it, the soul, does not cease to be, okay? So there's an argument from the immateriality of the soul to the immortality of the soul, okay? Uh, again, that's only a very fast uh, version of the argument. There's many things that could be said about, about this in much greater detail, but that's, I guess, the gist of the argument, okay? All right, now all those things that we've laid out so far, um, are really, I guess you could say, the standard Thomistic account of the human soul. And really what it does is raise a series of hard questions. So that's what comes next on the handout. Um, here's, here's one of the hard questions. The soul is both the form of the body, we talked about that yesterday, but it's not just the form of the body. We talked about that today. Why is it not just the form of the body? Because it, the soul itself, human soul itself, carries out this in, intrinsically immaterial activity all of its own, okay? And we've shown that it's immaterial, and in some sense it subsists, but it's not a substance distinct from the body, okay? So how can that be? Explain. Um, where's Aquinas on this? So I put on here the spectrum that we often think in terms of. On the left-hand side, there's substance dualism. On the right-hand side, reductive reductivist materialism, and Thomists love, 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 love to say we are neither of these, we're at this place in between that holds all things in proper balance. Uh, but it turns out 
that once you demonstrate the immateriality of intelligence and the immateriality of the soul, um, this position of hylomorphism in the center can seem to be destabilized a bit and you start moving more and more, or you can, uh, start moving more and more in the direction of substance dualism. Okay? Next, what is a separated soul? Okay, so when this when uh, this person dies, if death is the soul, the separation of the soul from the body, there the soul continues on, the human soul continues on, it survives death. Uh, that raises all sorts of questions. Uh, how can it be an individual? Matter is the principle of individuation. It's a common statement in Aristotle and St. Thomas. So how can the soul be individual? And what sort of relation does it have to the, to the body that it once had or formed, we should say. Uh, another hard question. Let's follow this note carefully in number 10. The person, here I mean like Boethian person, if the person is the composite of the soul and body, and the soul survives death but not the body, does the person survive death? Some say yes, others say no, and uh, John O'Callaghan is going to give us a magisterial response later on. Okay, uh, number 11, how can the person have free will if the acts of intellect and will are extrinsically conditioned by the corporeal powers of the soul? That, that's a, a pretty common question, so we're going to have a talk on free will as well. Okay, in the, in the time that I have remaining, I would just like to point out some things that I call just I sort of randomly group them together under special properties of the soul. These are things that are very interesting. St. Thomas does talk about them as features, I guess you could say, or traits or characteristics of the soul. They're, very, they're, they're rarely discussed, it seems to me, in Thomistic philosophy, but they have extreme relevance in theology and in discussions of the spiritual life. So we want to make sure to point out that there's actually a basis, a philosophical basis for these things. So, uh, the first special property, the human soul is specially created by God. That's something I talked about yesterday uh, very briefly, but today we actually get the reason for saying this. If the human soul is an immaterial form, if, it's the, if it is the form of the body but has a, a life, a natural spirituality and activity of its own insofar as its spirit, uh, then how can the human parents, the proximate progenitors, um, produce uh, or reproduce or procreate another human being uh, with this kind of soul? And St. Thomas's answer is simply they can't. Uh, the, the soul of each human being is immediately and directly created by God. That's a clear teaching of St. Thomas, a clear teaching of the Church. Um, it seems to me that there's a tremendous amount of um, potential, no pun intended, in this thesis or in this topic for discussing things like identity, uh, which is a very hot topic. Uh, and there's a lot of, I think, resources in this teaching that could be exploited. Uh, to talk about the singularity of each person, the uniqueness of each person, uh, without falling into saying each individual is a species, 
all of his or her own and those sorts of things. Um, but the specially created soul is something that is there in the teaching of St. Thomas that should be discussed more, it seems to me. The next property, the human soul has interiority. Okay? Now, there is something, I want to draw a distinction between the internal and the interior. The internal is something like quantitative interior. If you take a tree and cut it in half, there's like the internal. That's like inside the, the, the quantitative dimensions of the tree. Human body has that kind of quantitative internal as well. I mean, if, you, if a surgeon cuts you open, there's going to be a quantitative inside. Okay? But there's an inside that the soul itself has. Okay? It's not just the quantitative internal. We can call it the interior or the spiritual interior. So there's a life going on inside or within the spiritual activity of intellect and will. Okay? And we can experience that, it, it seems to me. We can experience that interior life or that interior activity. In fact, we can experience it so easily and experience it so well that the temptation, I think, is to say, that's the real me. That's who I am. And the rest of me, the body, is irrelevant. And I think what substance dualism is, is a philosophy that starts from that experience of spirit and this interiority and sort of falls into saying, that's the real me. And then the body is like something outside that's kind of attached or had or extrinsically uh, kind of modifying it in some way. St. Thomas doesn't proceed that way. That's why we start with soul in general, get the properties of soul in general. It's a form of body. And then we proceed down more specifically, more specifically, more specifically. So we get human soul, which is you know, this, this principle of a psychosomatic unit. And then finally, at last, we say, oh yeah, and by the way, you have interiority too. So we kind of get to the most obvious thing last. Okay? That prevents the us, though, from over-identifying with spirit, which I think is a big problem in our times. Now, next one, the human soul has immensity, so the spirit has uh, depth to it, and it's sometimes called the abyss. You know, abyssus, abyssum, invocat, deep calls to deep, it says in the Psalms. So, this interiority that we have runs very, very deep, and there's many things that we could say about that. And lastly, um, the human soul has obediential potency. Now, obediential potency is a term that Thomas will use to name the potentiality, a certain kind of potentiality that's in all created things to be um, moved by God, I guess you could say, in some, in some way. But the obediential potency that we're talking about here is special. It's proper to human beings, and it's the intrinsic capacity of the soul to receive grace, to receive grace. So human soul is intrinsically open, and you could say, yeah, it's open to receiving grace, life of a higher order, a special gift of love from God that gives us life of a higher order. It's open to that. It does not intrinsically or essentially have that life, but it's capable, it is intrinsically and essential, essentially capable of receiving it. 
from God as a sheer gift. And just what that obediential potency consists of, whether it has any positive orientation in it to receive grace, we've got to be very, 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 very careful. Okay? Um, but I just want to say the Thomist account, uh, there's not simply a, a, a discontinuity between our human nature or our human soul and the life of grace. Uh, our soul is open to grace by nature. We are by nature open to grace. Okay? All right. Uh, that, that walks us through the first handout, uh, as up through and including the uh, special properties of the soul that I wanted to be sure to include at the end just so that people can see they are properly philosophical topics and they can be discussed, although Thomistic philosophers kind of rarely discuss them. The second sheet uh, that I want to give to you is to sort of uh, end in a way where I began yesterday. If you remember yesterday, I said there's two different kinds of way, uh, two different ways to proceed in philosophical anthropology. One way to proceed is to start with your account of nature in general and understand uh, soul and human souls in particular in terms of the in, ter in terms of nature in general. So we use the same terms of analysis of nature in order to analyze and understand human being and soul. So when it comes to understanding nature, the terms of analysis are potency act, subject accident, matter form, uh, teleology, etc. Human beings and human soul is inside that world of nature, although not reducible to it, is inside that world of nature. The human soul is not reducible to it. And we understand the human being and the human soul using the same terms of analysis. Matter, form, potency, act, subject, accident, the causes, teleology especially. Uh, and when you do that, the soul and the, hum the human being, human soul, is understood in terms that are continuous with nature. So you don't have a person-nature dichotomy. You don't start with person-nature dichotomy, okay? uh, which is a very, very important thing. Okay? There's another way of going, though, in philosophical anthropology where you say, let's take all of our understanding of nature, let's take all of our physics, whether it be classic philosophy of nature or contemporary physics, take all causal analyses, take all the terms of analysis, potency, act, matter, form, substance, accident, teleology, four causes, put that in brackets, set it aside, and just go back to your original lived experience. Go back to your personal subjective experience of just being you and living your life as it is prior to all that analysis, okay, all that system. Okay? Now, a person can do that, and we could also even probably arrive at a lot of truths by doing so. We can experience our own freedom. And we can say, I'm free. A person is free. I experience being in control. Uh, we can say, I'm cognitive. I I'm capable of knowing. I'm capable of loving, capable of choosing. Uh, or we can even talk about dignity, interiority. A lot of the things that we've talked about, we could also talk about from that starting point. Okay? Um, but that approach, both of these approaches have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the one approach where you start with nature, see the human person in light of nature, and use the same terms of analysis that you use for nature in general to understand human persons or soul, that does tend towards a kind of objectivism or objectification 
of human person, human soul. So we look at our we look at ourselves as if from outside of ourselves, we study man as if you and I weren't weren't human, as if I weren't part of the su subject matter being studied. On this other way uh, you go, there can be a tendency towards subjectivism, but also what I talked about earlier, the, to identify the real me with spirit and the movements of spirit and say that's what's really real and my bodiliness is uh, somehow conjoined to me or maybe even forgetting one's bodiliness. There can be a tendency towards angelism and a failure or an inability to see the human person in continuity with nature, you could end up with a spirit-nature dichotomy. Okay, John Paul II was familiar with both of these sorts of approaches, and in his philosophy, he really wanted to transcend the distinction between the two and unite both approaches in one overall philosophy. So what's distinctive of him He's not a phenomenologist per se. He doesn't want to practice bracketing and set aside the perennial philosophy, but he also doesn't want to uh, just become an objectification to himself or to others. He wants to take seriously lived experience and the truth that can be discovered in and from the sort of ref reflection upon experience. And he's unique that way. So he allows, he says, the perennial philosophy of human nature is true and uh, we can learn a lot of new things through studying uh, our lived experience and reflecting upon experience. Okay, uh, so my attempt to bring these two things together is on this sheet. So this is sort of my, uh, the fruit of thinking about Carol Wojtyla for a number of years. On the left-hand column, you have the powers of the soul. And if you just forget about everything to the, to the right of that column and just go down the list of the powers of the soul, you have the traditional uh, sort of analysis of the powers, okay? Now the tendency is always to reify those powers as if they were things themselves kind of floating off in space and then start to do an analysis of the powers and their interactions with one another as if they were a whole bunch of things, okay? So the point is often made by Thomas themselves, acciones sunt suppositorum, all these acts that are carried out are carried out by the supposit, not by the powers. That's the middle column going down. And what I've done is I've, a, I've just kind of spelled it out explicitly. So I've added the word I to all these things. I see, I hear, I smell, I taste, I touch. That's the actual metaphysical truth of the matter. And it's also very open to experiential reflection. So every single one of these acts that I do, I see, I hear, I smell, I, I touch, I imagine, I recall, I hope, I dare, I apprehend, I see, I understand. Every single one of those acts I can also experience from the inside. They're inward givens in addition to being empirically observable or inferable from empirical experience okay, in other people. So that opens up the possibility for reflecting on all the same things from this other point of view that is insofar as they're inward givens. Okay? And basically, I think what John Paul II wants is for us to do all of these things, okay, in one overall integral philosophy. And the big challenge that a lot of people raise to his thinking is, what does the reflection upon the lived experience do? What does it accomplish? What does it get you? Um, does it enhance or expand? Does it give us anything substantive 
any new insight that's not already, so to speak, in the left-hand column or in the middle? Um, and the answer will be, well, number one, maybe it does give you some substantive new insight. There does seem to be lots of things we can discover only by introspection or reflection upon our lived experience. That's possible, though examples of that would uh, take some time to spell out. But here's another response that uh, when it comes to being human, we are interested in and are seeking, and even in our philosophical activity, we're interested and, in, and we are seeking something more than just objective understanding. Yes, we want objective understanding. That's one of the acts of the human person. Uh, but we also want something, we want many other things besides simply objective understanding. And the reflecting upon being human from the point of view of our lived experience can help us and assist us in many other ways. It can help us to become more integrated human beings. It can help a person to grow in self-possession. It can help in the interior ordering of one's life in a, in, the, in a practical sort of way. And in fact, it seems to be at this point in history that that way of proceeding is what actually speaks to a lot of people most deeply. Okay? This is why we have the phenomenon of many students showing up in universities. They come looking for the meaning of their lives. They want to know what they're all about. They sign up for a philosophy class. They take intro to philosophy. It speaks to them in their interior experience, their subjective lived experience, in no way whatsoever, so they go and become psychology majors. <laughs> and, and, and the psychologists become, have become the interpreters of life uh, in our society. Okay? So John Paul II is in a position where he wants these things together so that philosophy can do a lot of the same thing. There's also, and this will be my last point, I know I'm over time, but I think there's another reason too John Paul II was living under communism, and the government and the authorities of the day uh, exercised a lot of domination over human persons and a lot of mind control activity, and they had ways of getting into persons in their spirit and, and uh, being manipulating persons um, at, a, at a level that gets to the, like our psychological roots, where there was a kind of manipulation of personhood uh, very, that was very interior. In fact, some of our Polish brethren who lived under that system have described how it worked to me. And it, I think that John Paul II wanted to do this kind of reflection upon lived experience uh, because it allowed him to retain a sense of integrity and dignity and remain well-boundaried from a system, a political system, that was um, overriding uh, some of the, the human the boundaries of the human person and exercising a kind of mind control. And I think we're not far from that anymore in our society. I think if we're not there already, we're on our way. If not in the political system, definitely in the universities. It's already there. Um, we could talk about that for a long time. But we need a kind of philosophy that's not going to give us simply an objective understanding of just here's what a human person out there is. But here's who I am, uh, and here's how I stand over and against this system of mind control that's all around us. Okay? All right, so that's, uh, that's the, the end. So do we have any questions? Um, with regard to, I think it was one of the premises in uh, point six, mm -hmm. 
one needs sensory images in order to know. Yep. Um, is there a way, I guess, of uh, justifying that premise? Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I kind of wonder what the underpinnings of it are in a way, because it seems like that's actually a helpful um, way to move from somebody who's beginning with their own, um, mm -hmm. the, the sort of dualism that you're talking about of my consciousness is what my soul is. And if, if, if you can link that to the other operations of your body, you can sort of see that it's, that it's uh, a part of the yep. substantial form. Right. So in answer to your first question, what sort of justification can be given for that? I mean, a very simple one, just to, to start us off, would be something like either there are innate ideas in the human intellect or all of our ideas are in some way or another received from without through sensation. And arguments against innate ideas abound. Some people have said that John Locke definitively and finally put to rest every kind of argument in favor of in every, every form of, every doctrine of innate ideas and every argument in favor of innate ideas. So if you, if you reject innate ideas, then our ideas come through sensation. There's nothing in the intellect which is not first in the senses. And that would be a kind of general way of arguing for this position, that one needs images in order to know. I, I grant that there's many other uh, distinctions a person wants, you might want to make. Like, in order to know in general, I need sensation in general. Sure, that, that seems to be a pretty, pretty evident, okay? If you don't believe, certainly if you don't believe in any ideas, that's, that's gonna be very clear. Um, but then there are other more subtle distinctions, like is it the case that in every act of knowing, I need an act, an act, like an active image right now. Do I need it like immediately? Uh, that's right. Can there be imageless thought? And then further questions get raised. Well, what do you mean by images? Because images themselves can be more or less sharply uh, defined in our imagination. And is image then becomes a, is a strange notion because you can have images in imagination. There's imagery in memory. There's imagery, even in a manner of speaking, at least in or coming from cogitative power as well. So um, this, this would take us afield to other topics about experimentum and other things and collatio, but we won't go there. But th that's just a general kind of justification for why we need images in order to think. It's, it correlates with empiricism. Okay? It's a corollary of empiricism. And basically in response to your other point, that it's often helpful to just kind of help people get back in touch with empirical reality, uh, to kind of come out of the immersion in their own interiority, uh, that, that does seem correct to me. That's why earlier when Katie was kicking us off here, so let's get back to the, to the real world, the sensible, sensible experiential world. Are the actions of the intellect, or at least the human intellect, inherently in time? Or is this a factor which depends on the fact that they are dependent on physiological processes? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what exactly what St. Thomas says about that. Certainly Aristotle in the Platonist tradition does tend to think of spirit as being above time in some way. But there's also countably discrete um, acts. So when you have countably discrete acts of of spirit, 
then though they may not be in time per se, they're going to be in the so-called avum. Uh, but St. Thomas does think of the activity of the intellect being tied to the imagery, and so you, could, you might be able to clock it in time that way. That's maybe the best I can do in response to that question. It's a good question. It's, it's even more pronounced when you talk about the separated soul. What's time in purgatory? Is there time in purgatory? Right. Thank you for your talk. Uh, I had a question about this point about God supplying the phantasms in yeah. heaven. Um, so it's kind of a twofold question. One of them is if phantasms are no, so necessary that the separated soul needs them in eternity, yeah. uh, then what is in the, the... In the interim state. In the interim state, yeah. right. Um, then, then what is the the live distinction that Thomas is making, where in which he's saying that the rational powers have their subject in the soul alone, and not in the composite? So that's kind of the first part. And the second is, if, if the subject for these powers really is the soul in itself, then it like stands to reason that perhaps, when elevated by grace, the soul would at least maybe have some way of knowing that it's okay, apart yes. from phantasms, yes. so, right? Well, that's a sec the, sec the second question we'll take separately. But to the first question, um, what does it mean to say that the intellect is intrinsically immaterial if it's tied to the body, if it's extrinsically dependent on the body, even to such an extent that it needs phantasms to be supplied in heaven? Um, let me try to think about how to answer this question. Um, Would it help if I just said the activity of the intellect is irreducible to all the powers and acts of the body? Uh, sometimes just phrasing it that way might make it clear that it's just it cannot be reduced to them. It, it's something more than just this, the, pow, the acts of the, the body, either its potential or its activities. So there is an activity that the soul itself carries out. Soul itself meaning the soul as distinct from the body that it carries out. So it's this is how St. Thomas just argues, there's got to be a subject, there's got to be like a subsistence to the soul itself, distinct from the body. And the body even might even say participates in that subsistence of the, of the soul itself. Um, so the, the, maybe the quickest way to answer that question is try framing it in terms of reducibility and irreducibility. So intellectual activity is irreducible to physiological activity, even if it's tied to it or dependent on it extrinsically. Um, the second question was about, well, maybe couldn't we just say there's knowledge by grace that is not um, knowledge by nature, and that this knowledge by grace uh, is a knowledge that doesn't necessarily need phantasms to supply it. Yeah. I really think St. Thomas thinks that um, when God gives us grace, it doesn't violate the laws of our nature. It really operates in a way according to them, even though it carries us to ends that are way beyond it. Okay? Uh, that might be one sort of response. But a case could still be made for your point, which is that, well, do you admit or grant that there is such a thing as imageless prayer at all? And there we'd have to do an empirical study of the mystical life of the church, and there's lots of people that do seem to testify. There's imageless prayer. There's wordless prayer. And how then 
if there can be imageless or wordless prayer in this life, even while we're in the body, how come the interim state can't just be like that? But Thomists are generally very loath, like loath, to admit <laughs> that there even is such a thing as imageless prayer or wordless prayer, although there are distinctions that they can draw to account for that kind of phenomena. Like the images and intelligible species are present virtually, but not operating actually in, the, in that kind of mode. And it all comes down to what does in virtute mean? <laughs> Uh, yesterday, you distinguished the animal soul from the human soul as uh, the human soul is specially created by God, whereas yes. the animal soul, the efficient cause, is the immediate, uh, the, the parents. Yeah. Um, when the, insofar as the parents create the, the supposit. Sure, the sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, my question here uh, is um, certainly the human soul, taking for granted the rational powers are immaterial. Yep. Uh, the, the, the human soul needs to be immaterial, but mm -hmm. that immaterial soul still has the powers, or at least participates in the powers of vegetative and sensory. Uh, so it doesn't seem like there's any particular reason to not think that the animal soul might also be immaterial. Um, okay. No, the reason for immateriality, properly speaking, is in the intellectual activity of the human soul. And we cannot find such an activity mm -hmm. in the animals, in animals that are less than human. So we don't posit an immaterial soul. Well, right, I understand yeah. that there's not a positive reason to think so, but is yes. there a positive reason to think that it is only material? Uh, in, the, in the animals? Right. Um, a positive reason to think that it's, o that it's only material. Right. Um, because the, the soul that we have experience of is immaterial, so there might yeah. be a supposition to think that other souls are also immaterial. You mean the animal souls? Right. <laughs> I don't know, what, what do you mean by there is a supposition to think they might be? That is, our experience of soul is mm -hmm. evidently immaterial, yes. so it makes sense to think that other souls are like ours. Uh, they would have, uh, yeah, if we, s mm, I don't know if I would grant that right up, up mm -hmm. front, but let me just put it this way. Uh, if we, we can observe sensory activity in the animals, and all sensory activity is going to be of particular things, mm -hmm. okay? If we don't find any evidence of activity regarding universals okay, right. in the animals, then I don't know, even though it might be some metaphysically abstract possibility right. that they're carrying out that kind of activity, we wouldn't, we wouldn't posit it in them. That might be the, yeah, I've never had anyone ask for a positive reason to say they don't have immaterial souls. Uh, this is just a, a, a distinction, right? We haven't yet had a distinction, and we're in a Thomistic setting, so we need a distinction that's, that I think can help avoid <clears throat> a lot of ambiguity. And it goes to the previous question, the first question, and that is um, body is used in at least two senses. Yeah, yeah. In Thomas, um, there's, you are a body, mm -hmm. right? You're a living body. You're identical with this living body and so on. So that's one sense of body. And then there's another sense of body in which Thomas and Aristotelians will say, oh, the human being is a hylomorphic composite of soul and body. 
And that sense of body is not the sense of body we mean when we say Father Brent is a body, a living body. It's unfortunate because it happens in Latin, but also in English. It's probably better to think of that second sense of body as bodily, right? What's bodily about Father Brent? What's bodily about his body or he who is a body? Um, and that's the sense in which it, there's no problem saying that a body thinks for Thomas. Father Brent is a body and he thinks. Thought is an activity of that living body. What it isn't is, uh, uh, that is intellectual thought, what it isn't is an actuality of what is bodily about Father Brent, right? And that's why Thomas can say that the agent of thought is Father Brent. He thinks not in virtue of what is bodily about him versus, say, he sees. The agent of sight is Father Brent. He sees in virtue of a bodily organ, yeah. right? So if you, if you keep those two senses, which oftentimes aren't kept distinct, yeah. Yeah. you can avoid a lot of um, problems of, again, a kind of creeping dualism that, oh, well, you, you're incoherent here because you say right. thought isn't bodi- bodily. Well, no, what I said was thought isn't bodily. I didn't say that thought isn't the activity of a oh, body. Yeah, yeah. 